All right, tell me when we're going. Are we going? We're going. Oh, yeah, look at that. I'm looking right at the tracks. <laughs> My name is Ken Lane, and I am the host of Desert Oracle Radio and the editor of the magazine of the same name. How would you describe Desert Oracle? Desert Oracle was my attempt to take all the stuff that I loved about the desert, the history, the flora and fauna, especially the folklore, and put it into a somewhat self-contained world. Mm. So it was a romantic notion. I've read that you started Desert Oracle after a period of disillusionment with reporting and journalism. Is that fair to characterize? That's fair. I mean, the period of of disillusionment with journalism was something that persisted through really my entire career in journalism, Mm -hmm. 40 years as a writer. But I still love so many aspects of it. And I thought, maybe I have one more big project left. And the only way it's going to be what I want it to be is I just cut all my ties to everything else and do this and nothing else. How did you, you know, and I apologize because these are questions you've probably answered a million times before. Oh, but the answers are always different. (laughs) Lovely. Did you always know that you wanted to do something that embodied the voice of the desert? Yes. Or at least for Uh, 40 odd years I have. Yeah. Tell me about your relationship to the desert. I grew up, I was born and raised in New Orleans, which is about as opposite as you can get to the desert. Flat, swampy, no mountains, lots of people. But my dad was raised in Arizona, in South Phoenix, which in the 1940s and 50s was not much bigger than Moab today. And he despised the desert. It was nothing he hated more, except where he was from, which was uh, Appalachia, the mountains of Appalachia, where he was born and spent his very early years. So... When my family moved out from Louisiana to the West Coast, his dream, as many people from Phoenix dream, was to be in San Diego or somewhere on the beach in California where the temperature never changed from season to season and where you didn't need salt tablets to be working outside. Mm. But... The economic situation, our economic situation, meant that we couldn't afford it there. And so we were only there very briefly, about a year. And then we moved to Phoenix for a couple of years to save up to live in California. So in the desert, to his chagrin, I felt totally at home. Hmm. I loved it. I loved the environment. Hmm. I loved the space. I love being able to see mountains from any window, anywhere. If you were inside and then outside, you were just surrounded. And when I was about, oh, I don't know when this was, seventh grade or something, there was a science camp up at a place called Lake Pleasant, north of Phoenix, which is a a reservoir to 
send water down to the swimming pools in Phoenix and Scottsdale. Scottsdale. And I love it because it was the first time I ever met people who liked it. And so we walked around at night and looked at the little elf owls and the saguaro holes. And we got to uh, uh, handle gopher snakes and king snakes and tarantulas and sit out under the stars. And I just thought, this is fantastic. So it was a couple of years later when I got my driver's license that I started exploring the Southwest on my own. And it was just very clear to me. Obviously, you can't do media at that point, the early 80s it was for me, um, in small desert towns. There was no internet. There was not much of anything except all the stuff we love about the desert. But I sort of thought then, I don't know when and I don't know how, but somewhere down the road, I'm going to live in a small town in the desert, and this is going to be my work. Wow. And what made it Joshua Tree? Joshua Tree is one of the places I've been spending time at for many decades. Um, the first time I went to Joshua Tree was 1983, and that same summer was the first time I came out here to arches and canyon lands and everything. And just because I've got more friends and family ties and work and whatever uh, further west, that's the Mojave became my home desert. Do you remember, and this might be a little bit silly of a question because stories are pretty much what everybody breathes. It's almost like breathing. But do you remember when, you know, storytelling became important to you as a storyteller? It was a couple of things at once. It was falling in love with books, you know, adult books. Once you're old enough to not have it just be a homework assignment. Uh, I love country music, old country music, which is storytelling. You know, albums like Redheaded Stranger by Willie Nelson, which that's a book. Yeah, you know, that's 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 a that's a book that's going to reach a lot more people than whatever wins the. Uh, I don't even know the names of the book awards. Now, now I'm a I'm a professional author. I've I've never uh, yeah. tried to get an award. You have to get nominated for those things. Sure. And it turns out uh, most people nominate themselves. And it, I have to work for a living. So who has the time? When yeah, you- yeah. So those those things, uh, beat poetry. Uh-huh. Um, well. You got to mention Edward Abbey when you're here. So I first read Edward Abbey in high school. And whatever you want to say about Edward Abbey, a 17-year-old teenage boy, that is just the ideal personality. Hmm. Immature, running around, doing things that aren't making any money, Mm -hmm. living to have romantic experiences out in the wild. Mm. So that's some of the stuff. Uh, And I've done radio since I was a kid. I started doing radio in high school. You did? Where was that? I went to a broadcast magnet school. These magnet schools, the idea was, because 
my parents finally got a house in the suburbs, you know, mm-hmm. and this is when I'm 15 or something. And there was this big, boring suburban high school, and it was like all kind of white preppies, mm-hmm. and they were so boring. And so six months later, I enrolled myself in this magnet school downtown to lure to lure people like me, mm-hmm. so that they could get uh, a mix that would please the state of people from different ethnicities and sure. backgrounds. So I did TV and radio and newspapers there. And I've done one form or another of that for the rest of my life. Um, with Desert Oracle, the radio show now, I'm curious how you approach uh, creating it. You know, you take listeners from, you know, a historical event or something that's happening in our contemporary culture. And you're blending it with, like you said, folklore. And some of my favorite moments from your show actually are at the end of the program where you give like a PSA of a volunteer event. (laughs) So you ground us back down into the here here and now. Are you approaching this like short story writing? I'm not sure. I don't... I, I quoted Leonard Cohen last night on the show. Not from a song, but from an interview he gave in his last years that I think captured the chaotic way that that good things usually come together, mm. at least for me. And he said, I was asked how my approach to making art changed over the years. And he said, I never had an approach. I was just like a bear trying to get some honey out of the beehive, you know, without getting stung to death. So that's basically it. The things that I'm interested in what I'm reading, the places mm-hmm. I'm going, and especially stories that people are telling me. Right. Because whenever I do an event, people mm-hmm. come up and say, you know, I don't know who else I could tell this to, but saw something real weird, you know, north of Las Vegas or something. So oftentimes, the little bits of folklore that I get from people, I can find some documentation on. Mm. Yeah. And then just go down that rabbit hole, mm-hmm. and everything's always connected one way or another. Everything's always going to involve landscape, uh, climate, cultures, language, commerce, so yeah. conflict. And often the most important stuff to people is the non tangible. And the right. folklore preserves the non tangible. The things that you you can't prove, the things that you can't put in the Smithsonian. Like the unseen, but felt? Or the seen, but not caught. Mm, yeah, sure. So to this day, it's a very late 20th century kind of thing that we're, we're still in. Yeah, people running around trying to shoot Bigfoot. Yeah. Or get yeah. Loch Ness, uh, the monster out of Loch Ness. Mm-hmm. Or they want to capture a UFO and and turn the technology into some new Silicon Valley thing that will imprison us all. And they can't. So it's eternally frustrating. But mm-hmm. our society doesn't know how to approach that stuff except as commerce and capture. So how are you approaching it? I approach it that it's as real as anything that matters to people. If I mean, you you look at religion, religion is not tangible. 
I mean, the history of it is, the texts are, but the, the core element is people believing something that they've experienced. And it's often the most important thing in people's lives. And now that we're in, uh, some people don't like to hear this, but it's true. We're in a post-religious society. There are still religions, there's still faith, mm-hmm. but they don't determine the course of society. They're bystanders. They want to. You hear people complain, you know, like, let's ban the you know Disney elf or whatever because it you know, uh, promotes homosexuality or something. And people say, yeah, yeah, and Disney goes on to make, billions and billions with whatever they put out and they don't care so now that that stuff is at the margins of driving society mm. what do people what do people have mm. and so people grasp at things you know i got some crystals i'm gonna wash my crystals in the river and i hear people talking about washing crystals in the river all the time up in joshua tree we don't have a river we don't have any water i don't know where they're going but it's a lot more important to them than what's on uh, Facebook. The endless pursuit of meaning in our lives that are run by too much media. Yeah, yeah. And media and uh, 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 technology culture that does not have a philosophy. It, It has the same philosophy as a cancer cell, which is growth. Desert Oracle, I think one of the reasons that people love your program and your magazine and your book so much is that it feels like an antidote to what you were just (laughs) talking about. Yeah. Uh, Well, that's all going to change. We got a line of Desert Oracle uh, video games coming out. We got action figures. Uh, We got, uh, what are they called? The cryptocurrency? NFTs. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I was, I was going to ask you about the future. So we're going to monetize it all. We're going to monetize <laughs> it. Uh, okay. I've sold the company. No, it's, I didn't do it. I don't like nostalgia. Yeah. But you can take the elements of things that mean something to you and use them now in a uh, current context uh, relevant to our time. I look at vinyl. Mm. Um people get something out of vinyl now that people forgot about. They forgot the experience of having music and a thing you could hold Mm -hmm. and you put it on a stereo and sit in the living room and you have to pay attention because it only lasts 15 or 20 minutes and then you have to flip it or there's no music. Mm -hmm. And the art is big and beautiful. And you have something that felt like just another consumer item that could be replaced 30 years ago now has new relevance. So that's kind of how I think of, of Desert Oracle. That there's stuff I love, radio, broadcast mm-hmm. radio, mm-hmm. print. Uh, I especially like simple print because I think it simple in terms of graphics and design. All my stuff is in black and white mm-hmm. because we're bombarded with color. You know, you go to Kinko's and you can make a lost dog sign in a thousand vivid colors. And so we're just used to it. Mm -hmm. Our phones are filled with color. Mm -hmm. And for text especially, I think black print on white paper Mm -hmm. is just the most beautiful way to get words other than hearing them. Mm 
the design element is really important to you. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As as important to whether it's the radio, where it's the sound design, um, the magazine and the book is very much about the experience of sitting there and reading it wherever you are and having the elements work together and not fight with each other. And so all my all my art is black and white. The pictures, mm-hmm. old illustrations, the photos I take. It's about the story too. So you, people can read the story yeah. without distraction. And so that what's there complements it sure. rather than competes with it. If you've ever worked at a magazine, you've got an art director and an editorial director, and they're at war. That's what it is. They con- that's how they describe things. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, we can't get another 500 words because the art director assigned all these photos that we paid for, and now we have to use. I want to ask you about your voice, too. Um, you said you've been in radio since high school. How did you develop your current voice with Desert Oracle and your presence on the radio? When I first did radio, and I've this is really the first time I've done radio full-time. Okay. I've done radio a little here and there over the years. Um, I tried to have a, a DJ voice, uh, an announcer voice. Right. And especially when you're a teenager, you know you need to adopt a voice because uh, you don't you don't really have one yet. Some people do, some lucky people do. But years when was this? In the mid 1990s, I ended up owning a radio station in uh, the former Yugoslav uh, Republic of Macedonia, and my partner and I, uh, my partner uh, Samet. Uh, um, Albanian Muslim from North Macedonia. It's right there next to Kosovo. And I, in our uh, great uh, market research, decided that we would make it kind of a country station. <laughs> and this was based on, I think, about two conversations with uh, Serbian and Macedonian truck drivers that they all loved to drive trucks. When they drove their trucks, they loved to be listening to Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings and Dolly Parton and that kind of stuff. It's sort of global trucker music. And we thought, great, let's do that. So since we were illegal, uh, we rented space from the antenna space from the Romani radio station in Skopje, which was also illegal. But... uh, this guy paid off whoever he needed to pay off. So we were kind of protected by him. And I just sit in there by myself wondering, even if anyone's listening, I mean, how many how many people are uh, English speakers? Yeah. Certainly some, but that was not the primary second language language for Yugoslavia. It was German. So you'd speak Serbian or Croat or Slovenian or whatever. And then you speak German after that because that was the cross Europe language. And then after that, you might have Russian or you might maybe have English. All the nerds spoke English because they got the bootleg sci-fi movies, you know, Star Wars and Blade Runner and everything. And so sitting at the board in the middle of the night in this small capital town, I just started talking like 
I would be telling stories sitting around at a bar with friends. And I found it very comfortable. Mm -hmm. But it took another almost 20 years until I had a a way to do that on on the radio uh, on a regular basis because nobody hires you to do that. And then I realized that all my favorite voices in radio, the ones that resonate with me, were these sort of fringe figures like that, like Joe Frank out of uh, KCRW, who did these sort of uh, absurd detective stories over a kind of William Orbit ambient soundscape kind of thing. And uh, a lot of spoken word Tom Waits stuff. William S. Burroughs was doing these records in the 90s with people like uh, Disposable Heroes of uh, Hypocrisy and some other hip-hop producers. And I just love that stuff, that mix of a story over kind of a low-key but very evocative soundscape. So whether that's outside doing it at a campfire where you have crickets and the fire crackling and coyotes howling in the distance and people kind of murmuring and cracking open beers and whatever that's that's a beautiful soundscape um and then in the studio i try to create something like like that mood mm-hmm. that i want it to be the perfect thing that you come across by accident driving by yourself at you know, 10 p.m midnight whatever on a two lane in the middle of nowhere and you start listening and it starts to hypnotize you, and all of a sudden you think you're seeing stuff in the sky or strange things leaping across the road. It's probably just a jackrabbit, but maybe not. I can only imagine that people have come up to you and told you that this has happened to them. with your Yes, yes, which is great. <laughs> that, that was my goal. That's why when the show started on uh, KCDZ, my home station in Joshua Tree, I insisted it had to be on at 10 o'clock on Friday nights because for commercial stations or even a lot of, uh, a lot of community stations, they put the oddball stuff on Sunday afternoons. You know, they figure nobody's listening. Sure. Sure. You can do your, uh, industrial metal, uh, small press. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're a community station. You're all about that. Uh, but if you go into your, know npr station in austin or san francisco or something maybe they'll give you something like that in in a hole when they have determined using all the ratings metrics they have that no one is listening so that's that's what they offer me like you could be on between the gardening show and the local music showcase at you know, 2 30 on sunday no 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 this is nighttime so thankfully uh on Z1077, my, my station that I started the show on five years ago this month. No, five years ago next month. They ran this thing, sort of like low-rent syndicated uh, thing called, I don't know, Slow Jams or something. But it only ran Monday through Thursday. So they were willing to give me that 10 o'clock spot because they didn't have a DJ at that time. They go robo after 5 p.m. Mm-hmm. or 7 p.m., mm-hmm. something like that. So they gave it to me, and he said, if nobody complains, the station owner, you know, you can keep it. And so now I have an hour there. They run a new show and a repeat. 
because there's, I don't know, going on 160, 170 shows at this point. It's a, it's a full archive. Yeah. <laughs> and you're doing it every week? I try, but in reality, I do probably three new shows a month. But they're written, you know, they're all yeah. produced. It's very rare we do something like we did in your studio here last night, mm-hmm. where while I still wrote the show and brought in some backing tracks, we also had uh, live live musical accompaniment from uh, John Gottschalk. And then uh, Sarah Mead was doing the engineering. And we were all in the same, just right next door to where we are now, uh, in the room together. And you know, if, if anyone out there listening wants to give us a grant to do that show live with three people, then you could do it. But... As it, as it often, as it usually is with me, is I have about Wednesday through Friday morning to put the whole show together. And then I usually record it Thursday night or Friday morning. And since the pandemic, I haven't been going into my radio station to do it. You know, you said that um, having that sound bed of music is important to you. And it goes hand in hand with developing your radio voice from modeling after all these people on um radio stations that you admire um what's that relationship like with red blue black silver oh red blue black silver has been a godsend i knew what i wanted for the music i didn't want stuff that was too sweet Mm -hmm. or or too abrasive i wanted mood stuff i wanted um yeah. You know, I love the sound design on, especially in the last season he did of uh, David Lynch's Twin Peaks. It's just beautiful sound design. Often you're not even aware of it until you start feeling kind of like a hum in your spine. And that's the stuff I love. So I love subtle stuff. I love uh, it, I need it to be uh, moody. And I like being able to mix stuff up, which red blue black silver has been able to do so well so that sometimes you have things that sound kind of like giorgio Moroder, sort of sci-fi john carpenter Mm -hmm. soundtracks you know john carpenter uh composes and plays all his movie soundtracks really wow like escape from new york and the things just incredible they live um so i had some stuff that i was using and then about it must have only been about 12 shows in. I get this email from this guy, and he says, already people were submitting their own music, mm. and I was starting to use it. And he says, uh, I could do that stuff, and I'm in Joshua Tree. And I'd lived in Joshua Tree for probably a decade at that point, wow. and I'd never heard of this guy or met him or anything. He was like a hermit. So... I said, yeah, send me some, you know, noncommittal, of course, God knows uh, what you're going to get. And he sent a few tracks in, and they were just perfect. So since then, we've become good friends. He's uh, done a number of live shows with me. Uh, he joined me when I finished up my tour that I did in November and December once I got back mm-hmm. to the West Coast. He doesn't travel, so I can get him out within, I don't know, a hundred mile range or something, uh, or even more in this case, I got him out to LA for the last show 
and it was like it was like a religious revival you know he's playing his his mm-hmm. organ he's got all his keyboards and mm-hmm. i'm up there with the mic uh so it is is crucial and sometimes usually he just does what he's going to do and i get the stuff and if it fits that week i use it mm-hmm. and if it doesn't fit I file it away. I'm always going back. What was that one mm. that wasn't right for you know seven months ago? Uh, but I think it's just right for tonight. And then I spend a day going through all these you know, tracks to find it. And other times I will say, uh, hey, I won't reveal his real name. I keep trying to say his real name and stopping right before I say it. Because uh, red, blue, black, silver. People don't even know if he's real. And, and it's best that way. I don't know if he's real. But I'll say, listen, I'm doing kind of a radio preacher thing for the opening monologue. You know, can you give me some ham and organ with some Leslie speaker and uh, that real kind of driving, you know, listening to the uh, uh, radio preacher in Bakersfield kind of thing. So, oh, yeah, I got that. And he'll send me something. And, of course, it's never quite what I thought it was going to be, but it's better. And other times I'll say, you know, I'm listening to a lot of underground hip-hop from uh, 98, 99, and I'm really liking those beats. And so he'll give me something with these, uh, uh, because that sort of stuff layered with keyboards, I just love. Because that part really, I mean, that really is kind of rapping. You know, Mm -hmm. you're writing lyrics, Mm -hmm. and you're performing them to the beat, into the different parts of the music and everything. Mm-hmm. And other times, I'll think, you know, just give me the creepiest synth wave stuff you can because this one's dark. And I perform them uh, to, to the tracks. So they're always timed to the tracks. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're not, are you layering the music afterwards? Or you, pro, you no. have the music playing as you're performing? I build the sound bed for the show. Mm-hmm. And I layer all kinds of stuff. I'll, sometimes he'll send me uh, tracks without beats, and then I'll add beats to them. Sometimes his, sometimes weird stuff I've found, you know, old old Napster files or whatever. And sound, there's subtle sound effects. We've got all our desert animal friends who show up. Uh, Sometimes there's, well, I don't want to give too much away. Yeah, don't give too much away. But that basic, that artistic relationship between you as a storyteller and him as a musician is, is kind of crucial to this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Is yeah. We, whatever's on the show, whether mm-hmm. it's, um, it, it has been mostly his music except for a couple of things, like last night mm-hmm. or like our theme song, the sort of surfy desert surf guitar thing, which I love, uh, those weren't done by Red, Blue, Black, Silver. But getting that stuff together and making the 28-minute show. Mm-hmm. I make the 28-minute show on however many tracks it takes, mm-hmm. you know, eight or nine tracks with all kinds of stuff fading in and out. And then I do the show straight through usually to that. And that, like that's what we did last night. Right. Just live. Just Yeah, I was yeah, live. Just live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. and John playing guitar was live, and right. Sarah Sarah was Sarah alive. <laughs> she said it was thrilling. <laughs> it was so cool. It was so cool. I should have Instagrammed uh-huh. it live to make Sarah even more nervous. <laughs> well, it's uh, <laughs> the only thing about that is I, I've done that sometimes, and then whatever station I'm I'm doing that uh-huh. at, they say, uh, well, 
nobody's streaming it. They're just li- they're just listening on on Instagram Live through your phone, mm-hmm. and so. Um, you know, finally, Ken, I wanted to ask you about community radio. I think you were quote. I'm gonna you know butcher this quote, but you were quoted in the Guardian, you know, saying something about NPR, and that you know <laughs> that it's not you know beautiful or fun or romantic. Yes. And I'm butchering this because you were talking about something else. You weren't even talking about NPR, but it struck me because. Community radio is something I think a lot about being here and being the news and public affairs director. I wonder what direction we're going in. You know, what's our role? Do we serve the audience information, stuff they need to know today, the wildfire that's breaking out, you know, on the mountains? Like, that's really important. Or do we take kind of a turn and go into, you know, collecting stories of our community? I think you got to do it all for for so many small communities mm-hmm. there's very little local media whenever you look at um, newspaper industry sites you know, it's just oh another you know, 100 dailies mm-hmm. became once a week or twice a week and 100 weeklies disappeared but they're going to have a website you know just and so many publishers threw away their entire business to try to game Facebook, and that was a that was a losing proposition. That was never going to happen because Facebook doesn't care if if journalists are covering your school boards and your town hall meetings and county soup meetings. Mm-hmm. They don't. They're fine if some unhinged nut is writing you know, three hundred words of illiterate gibberish and posting that on Facebook and that's that's your local content. So that's crucial and I think people in small towns um, rely on community radio stations, even if it's a commercial station, as long as it's got some kind of local news. So my station's a community station but it's, it's for profit and I don't love the music they play. They're, I don't even know what the format is. It's like hot eight Hot ace, not air conditioning. Hot, <laughs> hot adult contemporary. Mm, okay. Which I don't know. I don't even yeah. know what it is. It's like <laughs> songs that were hits eight years ago. Sure, sure, um, yeah, yeah. Is is very bizarre. Uh, but I guess some people like it. Um, for a nonprofit community radio station, the variety of music, the variety of programming. Like the live theater stuff that you all do. I mean, that's it. Who else is going to do that? NPR's not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if if NPR came in and bought that bought this station or I buy, do they buy things? No, I think they just sort of absorb ab- them. Yeah, we become them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you know, mm-hmm. goodbye weird music. And you know, hello three hours of the splendid table or some god awful thing of rich yuppies salivating over oh it's a four hundred dollar truffle <laughs> they're they don't speak to working people they don't speak to artists who work for a living they don't speak to kids who like weird music or grown-ups who like weird music they speak to the lowest common denominator of rich yuppies and you listen to their sponsorships, and you want to jump out a window. You know? and today we're brought to you by, uh, you know, Facebook, Archer Midland Daniels, Chevron, uh, and the poison industry. 
thanks for supporting public radio. So, public radio, I mean, NPR, I don't, I don't even think of that as public radio now. That's a different kind of corporate radio. So, what you, what you all do and what every station that, that Desert Oracle is on, we're on about 15 or 16 stations now. And they are all the most interesting spot on the dial. You know, um, you already talked about the future of Desert Oracle with um, video games. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, action figures. Action figures. Um, yeah. A line of investment products. Yeah. You know, what can people expect? Because I know the magazine is um, going into its last issues. I'm, I'm phasing out the subscription model magazine yeah. because that, that is about broken me uh financially and uh and and mentally it's just too much i kept telling myself for the first several years someone's going to show up and help me do this thing mm -hmm. you know and um and no it's a solitary pursuit yeah. uh i have contributors who mm -hmm. are very good but who is going to take it from that and my camera to uh flats that are ready for the printer and I do every. I do the layout. I do the typesetting. I do the copy editing, the proofreading, and you got to do it all. Because when it's out, of course, the only thing I notice is what's screwed up. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, so there are another four issues of the alleged quarterly. It hasn't been quarterly in many a quarter. <laughs> and after that, there will be a Desert Oracle Volume Two. A hardback, mm -hmm. uh, hopefully through my same publisher, um, which is FSG mm -hmm. McMillan. If I can afford to survive another book through a multinational publisher, that's an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. uh, people, if you're out there and you're thinking about writing books for a living, you're probably going to make a lot more money if you print them yourself and sell them around town. Because... I've spent most of the last year and a half promoting a book and the not very big advance was gone before the pandemic. Wow. So I get stuff all the time from the publicist and the publisher. Mm -hmm. Look at that. You're in this bookstore and you're in this and you, uh, you're bestseller in the LA Times. Bestseller in the LA Times for three months this year. And great. Well, I'll cut these out and you know send them to the... Uh, electric company so of course i'm going to do that again okay you put yourself through that yeah again. one more of those uh -huh. okay you keep you know uh -huh. you keep thinking well once a couple of them are out and mm -hmm. and they get into paperback which this book is now okay. and there's a spanish edition and i'm doing the audio book you know if there's enough of those out eventually they're going to give you a little bit of it which is naive but maybe it'll happen uh, i'm going to probably go back on the road again if the pandemic is tamed mm -hmm. for a while until whatever's whatever comes next, I'm sure they got something new waiting. And hopefully we'll do more radio shows on more stations. That's the stuff I love the most. Yeah. Was this on KZMU the first time you did a live show outside of the Joshua Tree station? No, I've done I've done live shows. Oh, I'm trying to remember, but were they broadcast live? I think outside of my Joshua Tree station, this might have been the first time there was a live show that actually went out live. Because 
they're often recorded and then they go on mm-hmm. the air the next week. Yeah, but do, doing them live in the time slot. Because Sarah had mentioned when we talked about doing this, she said, if it's too much with the 30th anniversary mm-hmm. uh, party and everything, mm-hmm. we could come in and do it the next day. I'm like, no, the next day is going to be daytime. Can't do it in daytime. Mm-hmm. And I want people who I just talked to at the party to hear it. Because that's that's why live radio is so much fun. Ken, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you feel you'd like to tell her? You got it all. You got it all, Molly. I don't know what else to say. Uh, <laughs> you didn't ask me what my favorite desert animal was or anything. Okay, let's do it. What's your favorite desert animal? I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> my favorite desert animal is one that was most exciting to see in the wild most recently. So as of right now, it's pronghorn because I saw a pronghorn twice uh, this week or last week now up by Green River, uh, including babies. I had never seen babies in the wild. So there was a herd of 24, 26, something like that. And there were, I don't know, We it was I was with Sarah. We were going up to the campfire stories. Yeah on the green river and that was incredible i'd never i'd never seen the little ones just right there when you catch animals like that that's only happened to me like twice before (laughs) it feels like a magical experience it is a magical experience it's it's is the is the reason early human societies wore animal headdresses Mm -hmm. and animal skins and everything because that's magic and that was an attempt to bring that into their you know, human lives of fighting over the kids and cooking dinner. Okay, what's your favorite desert season? I like winter the best. I like winter the best because it. I like cold weather in general, and especially in the parts of the desert where we have a lot of tourists. God bless them. Hopefully they'll support national parks and land conservation and everything else, but they don't need me around to do that. So I like the winter because it's usually just me in the desert. Thanks, Ken. Thank you.